heard an adage a long time ago that if you get people laughing, you get them listening. But there are some times when somebody might tell a joke, and it might be kind of an inside joke. Or it might be a joke that, frankly, for me and maybe for some of you, it might just be so far out there in intelligence that I am just not going to get it. You know, I'm just like on the outside. I don't know what is even being talked about. I shared this uh, with uh, Levi and Josh earlier. One of these is, what do you get when you put root beer into a square glass? Somehow the answer is beer. Okay? You know, you got to be like a mathematician to understand the meaning of that. All right? When you put root beer into a square glass. All right? Another one I thought, I, I kind of found funny. Who is this Rorschach guy? And why does he paint so many pictures of my parents fighting? Now, some of you guys are snickering at that, and others of you are like, I don't understand it. Right? It's like an intellectual inside joke there, you know? Uh, then the third one here, there are two types of people in the world. Those who can extrapolate from incomplete data sets. That's it. Some of you are laughing. Others of you are like, is that seriously a joke? It looks like an incomplete sentence to me. These jokes leave us scratching our heads, right? How is that funny? These, just, these jokes must be for someone else to enjoy, right? In the same way, if you're not familiar with Abraham's life, the verses that we're going to look at together here is going to be like, what in the world is going on? You know, this, uh, what is going on with Abraham and this guy Isaac and, uh, you know. So, as we've moved through Hebrews 11, part of my goal here is as we hear these people mentioned and, and talked about, especially Abraham, Abraham is focused on, on as the largest section of Hebrews 11. This hall of faith, it's called. Abraham being a, a man of faith, a, a one who represents life by faith with God. Um, it's, uh, it's important to me that for some of us, it's like, okay, catch me up on who Abraham is. Catch me up on this situation. Because uh, other people are nodding their heads, and I don't know what's going on here. Uh, Abraham, we've, we've learned a little bit about uh, pointed out in the book of Hebrews, because it's a letter written to Hebrew people, that Abraham was like the one, the, like for Hebrew people, for Judeo Christians understanding from the Old Testament, Hebrew is one of the, uh, I'm sorry, Abraham is one of the most amazing men of faith of the Old Testament. And we'll see this morning a major reason of why that is. But we're looking at this in terms of that, how we are finite followers of the infinite God. And, and we extrapolate that from these verses from Hebrews 11 that we'll be studying. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who, rece who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, on whom it was, of whom it was said... Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So, so as not to treat you guys like we're, we're like telling a joke that only like 
10% of people here are going to be able to understand or something. These statements here, let's go back into Genesis to be reminded of and maybe even learn a little bit of what went on in Abraham's relationship with God and his life with God. First of all, uh, I hope you have your Bibles with you. Turn to Genesis 12. These won't be up on the screen here. It's just a little bit too much PowerPoint work for me there to throw all this stuff up there. Uh, I'll confess. Um, but we, we do want every now and then to kind of quiz you. Do you have your Bible with you? Turn to here. So Genesis 12, 1 through 2. I'm sorry, 1 through 3 we're looking at. This is when, Je- when God visited Abraham, who was most likely a moon god worshiper, along with the rest of the people of the Chaldeans in the city of Ur. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, God later changed his name to Abraham, meaning father of many nations. But he he said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. Abraham didn't even have any kids. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, just to tell you, the people that came from Abraham and his wife, Sarah, became the people of Israel. They, they became God's chosen nation to bring his Messiah, to bring his anointed one to the world. God created a nation out of nothing. God created a nation out of a man who at this point in time that he's talking to him and saying, leave all of your friends, all your family, all your protection, all your safety, all your comfort of your city and go all the way over to a land that you don't even know about that I'm going to give to you He later tells him. And at this point in time, Abraham's 75 years old. So jump ahead to Genesis 16. So when Abraham is somewhere between his late 80s um, and 90, you know, early 90s, because it took him a while to go to Haran and then down to what is modern-day Israel, the land of Canaan. His wife goes with a cultural answer because here it is um, 15 or so years later. They've been living in Canaan for 10 years, we read. His wife goes to the cultural answer to them not having kids. And we read, now Sarai, her name was later changed to Sarah by God, Abram's wife had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It uh, it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Guys, don't ever reference that uh, when you're, you know, in an argument with your wife. Okay? That, that, That wasn't the mistake here, but... So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. This was a kind of cultural uh, answer to the problem of childlessness 
of their day, and it was it was uh, wrong for them to turn to this. Um, and that, then we're going to jump ahead to Genesis 17, verses 16 and following. When Abraham is almost 100 years old, God visits him again, promising that he will be the father of a great nation. And, and he will possess the land of Canaan. And he speaks specifically of his wife, Sarah, in Genesis 17. He says, I will, in this, beginning in verse 16, I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, so just tell you, Sarah wasn't the only one that laughed at this idea. And he said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael. Ishmael is the child, the son that Abraham had through Hagar, Sarah's maid. Sorry, I forgot to mention that. Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael may live before you. Ishmael's around 10 years old at this point. God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall, be, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, which means laughter. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Isaac is the son of Abraham, whom the promised covenant of God, a relationship between God and a nation was going to come through, a nation that would be God's privileged people, which guess what? Now God's privileged people is the church, the idea that God can have a personal relationship with a people. It came through Isaac. And then as we've looked at before, it came through Isaac's son Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons, which became the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, so... 2,600 years later, I, I mentioned to you that we would just touch on this for a second. 2,600 years later, A.D. 600, a man named Muhammad wanted to unite the Arab people under one God. Okay, they, they were worshipers of many different gods. Each tribe had its own God. He wanted to unite the Arab people under one God. And so he kind of rewrote history to say, okay, it wasn't Isaac who was God's chosen descendant of Abraham. It was Ishmael. This is why Muslims, Islam, do refer back to Abraham as being their forefather. But they believe God's promise came through Ishmael. But it was rewritten back, and any history book will tell you this, it was rewritten back into their history at 600 or so A.D., by the prophet Muhammad. Okay, so that's just a side note. Okay, so the following year, God fulfills his promise of Isaac. He specifically said, this Isaac, this son that you're going to bear, he is going to be the promised son. All of these descendants are going to come through him. So turn to Genesis 21, right at the beginning of the chapter. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised, meaning 
well, it says in verse 2, And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. Notice uh, the son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him. He called him Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, and God, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears me will laugh over me. Remember, Isaac's name means laughter. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. So jump one more chapter to Genesis 22. So we read in Genesis 22, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I, because that's what you hear, what you say when a voice comes from the sky saying your name. Here I am. He said, this is God speaking, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. He'll go up Mount Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. He's going to tell him to go to a specific mountain in the range called Mount Moriah. What the heck? Let me just say first, God later will make it very clear that he is absolutely opposed to human sacrifice. All right? Well, we don't want to read into this that Abraham is like, yeah, whatever. Something else is going to happen here. This was a test, a huge test. For Abraham, God seems to be encouraging the unraveling of the fulfillment of his promises. He made a very big deal out of the point that Isaac is the promised son. My covenant is going to pass through Isaac. These, all these descendants, this nation that is going to come from you is going to come through Isaac. So we continue reading in verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw a pla- the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. And I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, saying, "Like here, carry this son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. He said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they So they went, both of them, together. When provided with God's promise 
that, that this, these descendants, this nation is going to come through Isaac and God's command to sacrifice his son as an offering. Abraham trusts that God will provide for his obedience and that God's promises will still be fulfilled. God will provide for his obedience and God's promises will still be fulfilled. We read in verses 9 through 10. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. None of us can imagine the drama, the tenseness of this moment. None of us. And so just as Abraham was about to offer up his son, God commanded him, this son, that God, as God had commanded him to offer up this promised son, we read in verse 11, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or, or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. What an amazing uh, moments of biblical history. Pivotal. Foundational. This is why, as he's writing these three verses in Hebrews 11, the readers are like, the fireworks are just going off in their mind as it is referencing all of what we just read. So for you, if you didn't grow up with these stories or, or things like that, as we read here in Hebrews 11, verse 17 through 19, you're going to understand what's being talked about here. You ever think about what the difference that a prefix makes? Uh, think of the term forestation. Think of deforestation. I mean, it, it's very different, right? Uh, you know, if your kid comes home and says, Mom, my teacher told me today that I am going to be infamous one day. You start to worry. Right? Because it's one thing to be famous. That's good. But if you're going to be infamous, that's a very different thing. Uh, you know, to be infamous is uh, not a good thing. Apparently it means to be famous for doing something really, really bad. Just a prefix. It makes a big difference. To be finite. Everything that we know and see in, in our physical world is finite. What that means is having a definite or definable limits. Okay? It all has limits on it. You and I can only be in one place. We are limited physically. We can only know so much. We can only do so much. I can try to pick this pulpit up, but... I am finite, and a little bit more finite than some of you, and it is not going to be possible for me to pick this pulpit up. I have limits to my strength. You throw the, the uh, prefix on the front of finite, 
infinite, and it means the complete opposite. Infinite means immeasurably or inconceivably great or extensive. We are finite and we walk, if we know Christ as our Savior, we walk with the infinite God who has no boundaries to what he can do or accomplish. No boundaries, for instance, to his physical presence. No boundaries to what he can know. No boundaries to his strength. We're finite followers of the infinite God. You know, we are finite. Coach K, he can't tell his players at Duke, I'm retiring to live in a cabin in Idaho, but at the exact same time, I'm going to be here coaching you next year. He can't say that because he's finite. He can only be in one place at one time. God is infinite. God can say, I am returning to my Father's side in heaven. And at the same time, he can say, I will never leave you or forsake you. Because he is infinite in his presence. He is not bound by a location. He can be in one place. He can be in another place. He is infinite. The first challenge that I think that we can take away from our passage this morning is to trust that God's commands fit his promises. Trust that God's commands fit his promises because he is the infinite God. We read, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, in that moment when God told him, he said, um, when he was tested, he offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises, speaking of Abraham, was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, speaking of Isaac, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. The main statement here is Abraham, by faith, offered up Isaac. He obeyed. We see the point that is being made here. Is the same of the rest of the chapter. It was by faith that Abraham did this. Not by sight. By faith. I don't like it when faith is defined as like what you resort to when it doesn't make sense. That is not the definition of faith. What Abraham did here was he worked from what he knew about God. These details are given to us that, that Abraham... He was the one who had received the promises. He had received the promise of many descendants. We, we see that Isaac is described as his only son. This could be taught, described as his one-of-a-kind, beloved son. And it was, he was described also as the son to whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. We're putting kind of parameters around this. Okay, It was promised that Isaac was going to be the one who his descendants came from, yet Abraham was told to go and offer him up. So Abraham knew God can do something awesome here because he's the infinite God. Abraham obeyed God by faith knowing that somehow the command and God's promises were going to fit together. Expect the infinite God to command, and notice this is in quotation marks, the unthinkable. 
expect the infinite God to command the unthinkable. By unthinkable, I mean that God's finite plans and ideas are going to blow our finite minds. Right? Try containing all of the molecules of the known universe in a wheelbarrow. You can't do it because any wheelbarrow you build that's going to be big enough is finite. In the same way that our minds are finite. In the same way that you can't combine all the molecules of the known universe in a wheelbarrow, you cannot combine, you cannot contain the ways and the knowledge and the plans of God in our finite minds. We trust the infinite God and that his commands are going to fit with his promises. By unthinkable, I mean, you know, think about the, uh, our culture thinks of things, practices, behaviors as being obedience, as being unthinkable. They go against our ungodly cultural expectations. It is unthinkable to the world around us to wait to have sex until you're married. That is like, what were you, born on the moon? What are you talking about? I mean, our mind, our, our world looks at um, purity before marriage as like, you, you know, before you buy a car, you're supposed to test drive it, right? I, I, I want to look at our culture and give it the Dr. Phil question. How's that working out for you? You know, the reason why they're, other than just hormones, and those who work in the, in the inner city and in, in um, even, you know, in rural America even, uh, as, you know, there's the sociology na- understanding is small town America is the new inner city. But anyways, I digress. Um, they will tell you the reason why there are so many baby mamas is because women have figured out that to have a baby with a man is the only way that he's ever going to have any sort of future relationship with you because he's forced to. The expectation that we wait until to have sex until marriage is like, that's unthinkable. That's what I mean by These are considered unthinkable. It's unthinkable to the world to give a large amount of your income to God's kingdom work. The fact is this. I have a heavenly retirement account that blows any IRA out of the world. Just in what I've put toward it. I'm not bragging. I'm just saying it makes perfect sense to give, to, to invest in what pays back a million times interest over a million years than some piddly 10% from the stock market. I, you know, if I, if I hadn't worried about giving and put everything into, into, you know, an IRA or something, you wouldn't have to pay me, honestly. I'd be retired right now. But I'm not living for right now. I'm living for eternity. It's unthinkable in this world to give that sort of money to God's kingdom work. Over time, I'm talking, you know. But anyways. It's unthinkable to this world to stand on biblical, historical definitions of marriage and gender. 
All a famous person has to do is to uh, say that a person is defined by the chromosomes that God gave them, and they'll be canceled from this culture. It's unthinkable to this world of biblical roles in marriage. You know, we learn from Scripture, from Genesis 3.15, that sin marred the relationship of marriage. That it hardwired wives to seek to control their husbands and for husbands to domineer over their wives. And yet God calls Christian husbands and wives to model the relationship between Christ and the church. And for the husband to to think, how can I love my wife sacrificially like Christ loves the church when she disrespects me so much? Or for a wife to think, how can I be submissive to my husband when he's so unloving toward me? It's unthinkable in our culture to obey as husbands and wives as God has called us to. But the fact is this. Expect the infinite God to command the unthinkable in our culture. I seem to recall that we're told that God's ways are higher than our ways. I seem to recall from Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Or as my translation puts it, uh, J.D.'s translation, don't expect your finite mind to always know why you should obey God's commands. The other side of Abraham's experience is that he had been promised that Isaac would live long and prosper, to borrow that from the the Vulcans. Expect the infinite God to command the unthinkable and to keep his promises in unimaginable ways. The way that God can keep his promises, according to our finite mind, are unimaginable. They go beyond our imagination because we are finite beings. Abraham knew that God was going to provide what he promised. He had seen God provide Isaac to him and to Sarah at ages of 99 for him and 90 years old for Sarah. I think God's faithfulness is what allowed Abraham to obey God's commands without question. You have to wonder if Abraham was looking at his son Isaac and thinking, my son is a miracle. I guess God can simply do another one. You know, maybe part of the reason why I don't hesitate to pray for someone to be physically healed, as I was talking to uh, Brad earlier about, you know, him him coming back with so much sun from from uh, Florida, and, and I was saying, man, I got to stay out of the sun. Because bottom line is, I wasn't supposed to be born by human standards. Because melanoma runs in my family. My dad had a melanoma at age 23. There was no treatment for it. He was sent home to die. And God healed him. That's unthinkable. That's unimaginable. You can expect God to keep his promises in unimaginable ways. What has God promised? He has promised to save those who call on him. As we're told in Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth and that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. He promised abundant life to his followers. 
As we're told in John 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. He promised to return for those who have trusted Christ as their Savior. As we're told in John 14, if I go, Jesus says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. He promised to welcome his redeemed children to their eternal home and promise. He says in Revelation 19, verse 9, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Trust that God's commands fit his promises. Abraham had chosen to obey God's command despite the testing of his faith. He had every intention to obey even though he didn't know how God's plan was going to be accomplished. God, how are you going to fulfill your promise if I obey what you're telling me to do? He had set out to obey even though God's command seemed to derail the very promises that God had been, had been longing, that he had been longing to see God fulfill. You know, imagine you're, you're, at, you're in, in a battle, okay? And your general tells you, I promise you, you are going to make it home to your family. But then in the next breath, he commands you, now cross that open field under deadly fire and take this message to the other side. You'd be sitting there going, okay, is this general good? Like, is he just lying to me? Is he great? You know, can he keep his promise? Just because he says it will happen, is he strong enough? Is there going to be some like force field around me? Because this general, because my general promised me that I'm going to make it home to my family? God is great. Infinitely great. God is good. Infinitely good. Let's trust and obey him. We'll run into a command and promise combination in Hebrews 13. He says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. There's the command. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Then he reminds them of the promise. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Both are true. The command must be obeyed and the promise trusted. Remember that these Hebrew believers who are reading this in Hebrews 13, as we'll see, had suffered the loss of their property for following Christ. They had lost, suffered the loss of their freedoms because they refused to hide the fact that they were followers of Christ. The great danger that they were being commanded against, keeping your life free from the love of money and content with what you have, was, was a real danger for them to disobey because all they had to do was deny Christ and they could just keep their stuff. But they were reminded of the promise that, that they could hold to, that God told them, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Your stuff might. Your money might. Inflation might eat it all up. 
but I won't. Abraham certainly had some amazing faith, telling Isaac God will provide the offering, tying Isaac up, placing him on the altar. He knew that God could do the impossible. I want to challenge you lastly here as finite followers of the infinite God. Trust that God can do, in quotes again, the impossible. Is anything impossible for God? No. We say, see in verse 19 what Abraham was thinking here. We get a view into his mind. He considered that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead. From which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham considered. He reckoned it. It means he did the math. He thought about the power of God and God's promises. He concluded that even if God would allow him to go through with that blade piercing his son Isaac, it must be that God planned to raise him from the dead. Again, this faith is based on God's promise. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. The fact is, Abraham was so resolute that it's as if he, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. It's like, in his mind, Isaac was good as dead and resurrected. That's why we're told, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. You know, can you imagine if you had a chance to talk to somebody who lived in the 1800s and ask them, do you think it'll ever happen that we can go from the United States to Europe in a matter of hours rather than weeks on a boat? Like we could wake up one morning and go to bed in France. Or, or ask somebody from the 1800s, do you think it might be possible that we could live in outer space one day? Now, if they were aware of scientific advancements, and if they were aware of, you know, the idea that, you know, once you figure the math out, almost anything, nothing is really impossible, um, you know, physically, they might be like, I could see it happen. But if they were normal Joes like me, they'd be like, uh-uh, no way, forget it. But we've seen it take place, Right? It's nothing for us, for, for people to be flying all over the globe. We know that there are people living in the space station right now. Obviously, these possibilities are much more real for us because we've seen them been done many times. It's like old hat. Abraham believed that God could raise someone from the dead in order to maintain his promises. He considered it possible because God had done other miraculous things. He had kept his promises. We stand on the other side of someone who raised himself from the dead. If you know Christ as your Savior, you know that he has raised Jesus, his son, from the dead. It's not, well, he could do it. It's been done. What's more, if you know Christ is your Savior, you have personally seen him raise someone from the dead. You. We, like Abraham, we've seen it happen. 
we can trust God's promises and obey whatever he commands. Maybe there's something, I'm sure, if you have a relationship with God, there is something that he's got weighing on your heart. And you're like, I don't know if I can do that, Lord. I don't know if I can do that. Go to his promises. Trust his promises. And obey his commands. Now you have your own commands to consider in the light of God's promises. Like Abraham, you're commanded to consider the truth. Think about Romans 6, 11. Here's the command. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And you've been promised in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you. Except that which is common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. There's the promise. Now in the command, we can trust the promise and say, I can consider myself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now take advantage of accountability. Take advantage of good counsel. But don't ever think, I can't do what God's commanded. The mountain that Abraham climbed, that mountain range, the range is called Moriah. Are you aware that the hill called Calvary is a part of the same mountain? Think about Genesis 22 verse 14 again. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. What's it? The sacrifice. The offering. The final lamb was going to be sacrificed. It was going to finally be provided on that same mount. And that offering was Jesus. Let's bow our heads. Gracious God.